Beautiful. Um, be thinking as I go along. Any questions you have? We're going to try to have some time for questions tonight and certainly more tomorrow. Um, is the phone number, JP, is the phone number on the handout? Okay, yeah, I have a Google Voice number, and that's because, like, I do parenting conferences too, and people follow you to the car with parenting questions, okay? But marriage conferences can be a little more awkward. It's like, raise your hand and go, what do you do if your husband's like a complete rage? I can't really say that, you know? So I have a Google Voice number that you can text me a question if it's more vulnerable, or you want to keep it more private. Um, I did a conference in Birmingham two weeks ago, and they didn't even use it. They'd say, what do you do if he's a rageaholic? And he's like, yeah, I am. You know, they were very open, which I encourage. But for the sake of people who feel vulnerable asking a question out in public and all that, you can text it to my um, Google Voice, and I will try to answer it. I'm going to give preference to people who raise their hands and is not in there. All right, we will find it and publicize it tomorrow. All right. Um, I will give preference to people who raise their hands. So if you text and I don't get to your question, Mui, apologize, but, um, you know, we're going to do all we can. All right. We've hit two abilities. Intimacy, identity, the third eye is imperfection. Have I developed the ability, and you better believe you have to learn this ability, have I learned the ability to metabolize and make sense of and deal with the fact that life is so imperfect, that life hurts? on your planet are not perfect you know remember the ordeal you your wife isn't perfect the people you date aren't perfect and yes you heard it here on October 27th 2017 from John Cox you're not perfect either okay so in order to make sense of marriage and dating and all of that we have to make sense of the fact that life is hurtful we need to develop the ability to deal with the fact that everything in reality that's not a Facebook post is fallen. It's a mess, okay? And as we said, a lot of the cockamamie ways that we actually deal with our marriage problems actually create more pain. Usually when we encounter yuck, we don't have the ability to manage it and metabolize it and find peace with it or grieve it usually we move into that blame criticism protest we fight it we become critical we say this is inexcusable you know because we don't like what's going on or we go the other direction and we become compliant and go oh my gosh I'll try harder I'll try to do better all right so for marriages to work for dating to work for you to ever find anybody who's quote good enough for you we need to be taught, preferably as kids, to make sense of yuck and disappointment and failure and pain without going to blame and attack and criticism and perfectionism, all right? And we need to be taught this, all right? By the way, why do we need to be taught it? Because think about it. We were born, we were, we were created to live in perfection. We were created to live in Eden, your soul was designed to be living in a garden, naked and not ashamed, walking with God in the cool of the day. It's not like somebody went back and changed your programming. That's why kids cry. That's why babies cry. They're like, oh my gosh, this place stinks. 
You know, I've checked my ticket stub. I got off at the wrong planet. I'm supposed to be in a place that's wonderful, right? Our hearts were not made to live in pain. So we have a lot of growth to do in order to survive that, all right? So two parts again. Can I forgive you? And by that I mean, can I forgive you individually, but can I also forgive the world, all right? My flights got messed up today. I made it by the grace of God, but it was kind of a mess. Can I live, without, live with that without going, oh my gosh, this airport's, I hate this. Do we freak out about you, the world, the yuck? Can we stay grounded, all right? And can I forgive myself? Can I forgive me? Can I make sense of my own failure? All right, can I forgive you and the universe? Forgiving them, number one. Let's look at that. Can I face the loss, the tension that comes from the fact that others are not what I wish? Applied to your marriage, can I face the fact that my spouse lets me down? Can I face the fact that I wanted to tell them my heart and they missed it? Can I, can I deal with the loss and the pain of them being busy and distracted and not engaging me and stay grounded and stay loving? All right, this is an ability. Can I make sense of things being yucky and not lose it? I had a client come into my office uh, not long ago, and he came in and he sat down and he said, the first thing he said is, I hate my wife. And I'm like, wow. He said, all of her stupid women's clubs, and she never works out, and all she does is feed the children chicken nuggets. Ugh. And I'm like going, Whoa. What's going on? And then he showed his hand. All right? Listen to, listen to him like a psychologist. And then he said, and here I am crawling back to therapy to talk about you. And I got it. He was just as self-condemning as he was her condemning. She's horrible and I'm horrible and whiny back in therapy. You hear? This was not a marriage problem. This was his complete inability to deal with whether she was fallen or whether he was fallen. Okay? So, of course, he hates them both. All right? What needs to happen to make sense of the pain in life? How do we do that? How do we develop that ability? We need to be taught. We need to be shown preferably as kids, but we can certainly do it for each other in the body of Christ now, that good enough is good enough. This isn't exactly the way I want it, and this feels bad, but it's going to be okay. Why? What's bigger than the bad? We need to be shown in our experiences in relationships that love is bigger than the bad. That, you know, the world does stink, and it's really fallen, and you know what? I'm falling too. And so are you. And I love you. And we'll walk through this together. If you are with another person, I don't understand why this is, but God made us in such a way that if I'm in pain and I am engaged with you, another person, another set of eyes, if someone is with me, somehow that pain becomes manageable. I don't even know why that is. And this is my job. All right? It's not good for the man to be alone, right? There's something about walking into pain with someone that makes it more manageable. In other words, we're with each other, okay? That's why therapy works, by the way, okay? Therapy doesn't work because of the amazing wisdom of Dr. John L. Cox, okay? Maybe a little bit. 
But therapy works because God made us to where if you bring your pain into a relationship, the pain stays, but somehow it's better. My brother died almost 30 years ago. He was 27. 30 years ago tonight, I couldn't talk about it. I'd be squalling. I can talk about it now. Why? Well, because if I walk through pain with another person and move into grief, somehow it starts to soften pain. Somehow the pain in life becomes something I stop railing against. The loss is still there, but it's not as sharp. It's not as cruel. It's softer. Why? Because if we experience pain and walk through it with somebody, which I did, it heals it. It moves us into grief. The answer to pain is ultimately grief. This is how it works. We don't talk about grief enough. Grief is the holiest emotion in the Bible next to gratitude. Grief is a progressive emotion. You can be angry forever. You can be anxious forever. But if you grieve, if you touch your sadness with another person who loves you, that's why we have tear ducts in our eyes, not our fingers, okay? We have them here so you can see another person. If you get sad, you will move. The pain gets better. It resolves. That's why the Bible's talking about, you know, blessed are you if you mourn. That's why James says, you know, let your laughter be turned to, to, to mourning. You know, weep and wail. It's like, well, James, you're a party animal. Great. No, he's saying that, that, that brokenness is what leads us to God. That brokenness is what heals our hearts. Grief. What grief does is say, instead of protesting and trying to make you be better, your spouse is never going to be everything you want. And you're not going to be everything they want. Look in the mirror. What do we do with that? Well, let's grow together. Let's do what we can. But there's also a sense in which I need to grieve and be sad. You may not be all I want. But you know what? I know I'm loved. And I know you love me. I know God loves me. I know the body of Christ loves me. And grief has this process where I can let go of that protest position. This is a whole talk in itself. Grief is one of the things that creates life and growth in us. Because the more you grieve what you wish to take, the more you make room for what you have. Grief is that, like that Jim Elliott quote, giving up what you cannot keep to gain what you cannot lose. All right? It's magical. Don't get me started. Well, too late you did. Okay? Anyway, can I forgive you? Can I forgive the world? Can I deal with pain? Can I encounter things being awful and, and keep my poise? Yes, because I'm loved. That is the only reason. Love didn't get destroyed by the fall. It's the only thing that made it through. Love is still healing. Love is still present. Love will still cushion the blow. All right? So, can I forgive you? This also touches on the issue of forgiving an injury. We're in relationships with our spouse, and maybe our spouse has really betrayed us, or maybe they've done something that's really hurt us. Um, we're going to talk about that some tomorrow under conflict. But I do think the issue of forgiveness is fascinatingly underdeveloped in the Christian universe, since it's so fundamental to our faith. We don't really talk very much about the mechanisms of how it works. Um, if you want to address that some during Q&A tonight or tomorrow, I'll be glad to take a shot at it. But can I forgive you and life being broken? You see how hard that one is? The other one seems simple compared to this one. We got deep real quick. This is a tough one. It's a fundamental character ability that we need to develop, though. Um, can I forgive myself, number two? In other words, can I take in grace? 
Not can I just give grace and go, yes, you're fallen and the world stinks and I can <sighs> sit with that, forgive it. Can I take in grace? This is for people who live that guilty perfectionistic rat race, for people who live in the Christian rat race, you have to be good all the time. This is where you can't have people over without decorating your house like a, you know, a garden and gun photo shoot. Or um, I don't really want you to know me because I feel like I'm so bad. I'm ashamed. I don't want you to know me. I feel like I'm worse than other people. You know these people? Anyway, we need the ability to feel forgiven. You notice how hard that is sometimes to feel forgiven? To take in grace. To be good enough and it be good enough. All right? At some point in our lives, how do we get this? At some point in our lives, we need to have someone see me. Real me, warts and all, and their eyes don't fall. I have people in my office all the time say to me, I know God loves me, but I just don't feel forgiven. I know he forgives my sins, but I still feel so guilty. I call that the head-heart gap, by the way, how you can know stuff in your head, but you don't feel it in your heart. Okay, the reason that is is because we can learn stuff in our head through learning, through books, through coming to a conference. You, don't, you know where you learn your gut? You learn your gut in relationship. That's why you keep hearing me say these character abilities we develop in relationship. So what's parenting? A relationship. What's therapy? A relationship. What's the body of Christ? A relationship. Relationship is where we change that gut. So I asked these people, oh, really, you can't feel forgiven. Have you ever wounded anybody or really let them down, and you see in their eyes that you really hurt them? And you say, I hurt you. God, I see that. I, oh, my gosh. I'm so sorry. Do you forgive me? And you see the hurt in their eyes, and they look at you, and they go, absolutely, I forgive you. You ever had that happen? And I'm like, no way, man. You know, in my house, if you messed up, mom wouldn't speak to you for three weeks, you know. It's like, we learn, you mess up, it's the end of the world. They learn quite the opposite. What did you learn in an experience? If you had somebody forgive you, that's the only way we feel forgiven. We need to unshame children. Children are born ashamed. It's part of being born under the law. It's part of being born under the curse. It's not like kids come out like these happy little kids and mean, shamey parents shame them, which you can do, but kids come out burdened by shame. A parent needs to unshame them. A parent needs to say, no, 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 yeah, you, you're, you're like all down on yourself. Welcome to the party. I'm as screwed up as you. Let's do the screwed up dance. You know, and you sort of teach them, hey, it's normal to be fallen. We both need Jesus dance. Come on, we're broken. You're part of the group. Okay, and you teach them that it's safe. They need that. That's how we get that sense of, I can forgive me. It's safe to be me, to be fallen, all right? Only if we can do this is there room for me then. Let's swing this back to marriage. Only then is there room for me to, to swing in and disappoint my spouse and let them down and not be all terrified they're going to be mad at me, okay? Because I'm living in grace. You freaking out is not going to make me feel like a terrible person. You know that saying, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy? I say we let mama stay unhappy. You know, maybe she'll grow. I don't know, but, you know, run around trying to make it better. Grow up, mom, you know? Otherwise, you're going to be a slave 
And there are people who would love you being a slave and doing everything they want and keeping mama happy or daddy happy, whatever. But you run that forward in your marriage. And what I see in my office all the time is these little Mr. or Miss do-goods who always had to keep the other person happy, ultimately get exhausted with it. And they finally say, "Uh uh-uh, no more. And they get depressed or they go have an affair or they, you know, blow up or leave. And we go, oh my gosh, did you hear about their marriage? What can we be doing to help marriages? Well, this problem started 30 years ago when this person decided they weren't going to stand up to the bully. It just finally blew up down here because they lacked this ability or other abilities. This is brewing in our hearts. That's why I want you to get it at your heart. Marriage requires these abilities. And guess what, folks? We don't have them, all right? If you're anything like me, you don't have them. It's not just learning to communicate better, all right? Now, if I didn't manage to get you with the first three, if you aren't humble yet, if you aren't saying, well, man, I think I need to grow. I'm not so good at some of these. I'm going to get you on this one because this one's the Cuban baby. This one's the Monte Cristo because none of us do this one well. This is the Cahiba. Impulse control. Emotional management. Here's the bottom line. If you want to understand why humans act the way we do, why we do the choices that we make, you got to understand the amount of power that emotions have over humans. All right? And if you start really paying attention, you will start to realize that so much of our life and so much of our choices and so much of our culture and of our marriages is driven by emotional reactivity. I feel something and I act on it. Okay, the stock market, right, it's based on job report. No, it's not. It's fear and greed, okay? It's emotional reactivity. Oh, my gosh, everybody's selling off. I'm afraid I sell off too. (gasps) This market's going up. I can make a ton of money. Emotional reactivity, greed, I want more. In fact, you know what they call it? Think about this, market sentiment, Thank you. Exactly. It's market sentiment, all right? Emotional reactivity drives you. Why can't you stay on that diet? Oh, my gosh, these pants are getting tight, and I need to quit eating, but, uh, you know, oh, man, I want that cheeseburger so bad. And that feeling you would get if you didn't eat the cheeseburger, if you got the grilled chicken salad. You feel that feeling? Oh, Oh, heck, I'll just get the cheeseburger. That's emotion, Okay. Whatever's motivating the most recent protest march, wherever, you know, emotion. You know, we deserve this or y'all are treating us bad that. Our culture is about 13 years old emotionally, if you want to know. I will not comment on the emotional age of our commander-in-chief. Our whole culture is about 13 years old, okay? It's driven by emotional reactivity, and we don't talk about that. Most humans don't think and decide we react, okay? Now, of course, this is a theme in conflictual marriages, what we do with our emotions. Spouses who either can't bring their emotions to the table, can I feel? In other words, they live kind of digital left brain all the time, emotionally cut off. Or number, actually these are backwards, can I think? People who live with too much emotional reactivity, exploding and reacting and, you know, 
pouting and anger and destructive choices uh, as opposed to thinking, all right? So, two questions. Can I think and not just react? Can I feel and not detach, all right? Have you developed these abilities? I haven't. (laughs) Okay, Um, let's start with can I think. In other words, I have the ability, have I learned, have I been taught to be able to feel scared or angry or ashamed or threatened in my relationship with you and be able to catch myself and stop and back up and look at it for a moment and decide what I'm going to do? Or do I just pop off? Do I just react? Would you get off my case? You hear the emotional reactivity? In other words, can I think as opposed to just being emotionally reactive? See, I told you none of us can do this one, all right? But it is the hallmark of adulthood. The hallmark of an adult is someone who can feel something and step and back up and look at it and think about what he should do with it rather than just be reactive. Now, one of the reasons this is difficult is because we all begin life as children. And children are concrete thinkers and children are concrete feelers. In other words, they do what they feel. For children, emotions are real things. That's why when you don't buy them the bubblicious at the checkout counter, they don't say, oh, gee, mom, I'm really sad. I wish I'd gotten the bubblicious. They just go, Bleh! and they're out on the floor, okay? They're doing their feelings, okay? That's why you push a kid around on the playground. He's not going to say, you know, wow, Timmy, you seem very angry, which would really be weird, but... Um, he's going to do something, okay? He's either going to run away or he's going to punch Timmy in the nose. That's what kids do. Now, somewhere between there and adulthood, you reach the ability to where some guy can cut you off on the interstate and you go, oh my gosh, I'd love to just run into the back of that guy and teach him a lesson, but you don't, okay? (laughs) Hopefully, all right? Something has happened there, all right? You develop the ability to think about what you're feeling instead of just doing it. Now, what happened in those intervening years? Well, God made us to where, in order to do relationships well, in order to serve him well, we need to be able to have our emotions and look at them and not necessarily have to act on them and let them define our behavior, okay? Or as we used to say to our kids, you can be angry, you can't hit your sister. Or as God says, you can be angry but sin not, all right? Feel it but don't do it. This is a huge dynamic for getting along in a marriage. I had a couple in my office the other day, and she pops, pops in, sits down, and she goes, oh my gosh, I was just reading the most interesting James Dobson article. And she said, he was talking about how with, with homemakers, their work never ends, you know? It's like you do the laundry, but there's more laundry tomorrow, you know? And there's a cyclical, feudal cycle of emptiness, you know? And she said that there's a special need there for a real appreciation, because it's not like they ever, you know, like build a wall and you can look at the wall. The wall is done. It's like the wall keeps getting torn down and they build it again. So somebody, she was saying it really is important for homemakers that that get kind of recognized. And she's telling me this as they sit down. Well, her husband, I know him, he's completely run by his feelings. He's this emotionally reactive hothead, and he gets emotionally triggered really easily. And as she's telling the story, I'm watching his face, and I'm realizing he's getting emotionally triggered because to him, he's criticizing her. It's like he's, she's saying, you don't, you don't affirm me enough. You don't tell me I'm good enough. You don't appreciate me enough. And he starts getting like, I'm seeing him kind of getting riled up. He was having feelings 
Now, instead of backing up and going, whoa, cowboy, something about that James Dobson story makes me want to bite your head off. I don't know what just happened. Instead, he goes, oh, really? Well, you know what? You don't appreciate me either. And I go to work, and he goes off on her. And she and I are like, whoa. All right, so what happened? That entire interaction was triggered by his emotional reactivity. There was nothing in him able to step back and go, what's going on? Y'all ever do this kind of thing? Good, we got a regular crowd. All right. <laughs> so much of marriage conflict is about being, being triggered. I'm scared about how you're spending money. I'm insulted about what you said at me at, about me at that party. Or I'm hurt that you didn't defend me with your parents. Or I feel rejected because you pulled away from me. And instead of being able to back up and look at it and go, wow, that's a feeling and I'm not sure what's going on. What should I do about this? We just react. You know, well, why don't you just go live with your mother? You seem to love her so much, you know, and that's kind of the level of sophistication we're talking about, all right? So do we have the ability to think and not react? This is one of the ways I say it. Marriage conflict should be golf, not tennis, all right? In other words, your spouse says something and you're like, I'm spinning backhand and back at you, you know, boom. Really, another one? And we're off to it. Okay, it's golf, not tennis, all right? Your spouse says something that triggers you, blow it down. Yeah, the green breaks. How should I handle this? What do I want to say back to her? You know, pick up some of the grass and like flick it out of the way, you know? She's not going anywhere, all right? For better or worse. (laughs) For some reason, about two weeks ago, Norma brings this thing up of a way I used to relate to her like 15 years ago. Like, Remember how you always used to just blah, 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 and I'm like, yeah, you know? And now, between y'all and me, I don't do that anymore, okay? I got therapy or something, you know? It's like, I'm better, all right? But she's bringing this stuff up from 15 years ago, and I am immediately kind of want to go, it's making me feel bad. Like, I want to go, what are you talking about that for? I don't do that anymore. And I stop, and I go, hey, John, golf, not tennis. Take a time out, like we'll talk about tomorrow. What is going on for you about this? And I went, oh, I'm feeling really like she's telling me I'm still that bad guy who used to do those hurtful things. Interesting. What do you need, pal? And I thought, well, I need her to kind of recognize I'm not like that anymore. Like, boing, it can learn. Well, why don't you ask for that? And I thought, okay. Okay, so a little time go by, let myself calm down a little bit, saw how the green broke. And I went up to her later and I said, can I ask you a question about something you were saying earlier? She said, yeah. I said, you talked a lot about this way I used to be that was bad, I admit it. But it also would feel good to me if you were willing to sort of own too that I really have changed a lot since then. And she goes, oh my gosh, yeah. yeah." I mean, I didn't even realize realize how that would come across. Yes, please, yes. Oh man, I bet that felt terrible to you. And I'm like, yeah. And it turned out to be a really good thing. Why? Because instead of going, oh, really? You're going to bring that up again? I thought about it. We're talking frontal lobes, people, okay? We're going to talk about this one a lot in conflict talk tomorrow, as you might imagine. So if you can't back up and think about what you're feeling and ask that question and slow it down and play golf, not tennis, then your feelings will de facto make the decision for you. And I tell you, Usually, those choices will be unfortunate ones, all right, if your feelings make them.
So can I think? On the other side, can I feel? This is for the people who just shut their emotions off. Um, this is almost like, can I let you in? This is for the Mr. Spock, John Wayne types. You know, they don't, they don't bring their emotions in at all. All right, and you know, that's cool and all, the lone cowboy type. But the problem if you don't bring your heart to the table, as we said earlier, is people don't know you. You'll miss the heart of other people, and they'll miss you. And God will feel like some sort of concept to you, not the passionate relator that he is. And your spouse is going to feel lonely, and they're going to tell you about it. So the other ability we need is to be able to let feelings be part of the relationship. We're going to talk about this one tomorrow in the intimacy thing again. Um, but you can grow here. I have a couple, um, I guess a couple of years ago, he was like totally digital Mr. Spock, logical accountant, and he always thought numbers. Emotions didn't make sense to him, but he was wanting to learn, kind of be more relational and more grounded, more connected to his wife. But he, 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 we, we would tease him about it. He got so good-natured and humble about it that we'd tease him about how unemotional he was. So he teased us back one day. He, he comes in a session, and he has this card. And he's like, hey, Dr. Cox, I just wanted to let you know I had this card for my wife because I've been learning about feelings so much, and I want to give it to her here in session. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. And it's this card, and it says, this is just a card to let you know how I feel. And she opens it up and it says, I feel fine. <laughs> so, can you think and can you feel, all right? Now, buckaroos, that's the basic building blocks of relationship. That's the basic building blocks of wholeness. That's the basic building blocks of health. If you look at them from Christian eyes, you see I've just described, in a sense, a psychological version of sanctification. God calls us to intimacy and closeness and love and, and, and vulnerability and, and being one with one another. He calls us to be good stewards and be strong and know who you are and be steadfast and also be humble and make room for other people. He calls us to be, this is a big one, to be um, humble and, and not, not puffed up, to be able to forgive, to be able to get the log out of our own eye, to be able to grieve, to be able to make sense of the fallenness without having to take. And he calls us to be able to, he calls us to be um, non-reactive, to stand against sin, to stand against our impulses. These are so much what God calls us to, all right? I've operationalized them in a sense to apply to our relationships, all right? Now, life works well to the degree that we have these, and we will have problems to the degree that we don't. In fact, if you want to understand symptoms like depression or anxiety or addictions or OCD or eating disorders or whatever, usually they come out of deficits here. We can talk about that in Q&A if you want. But I want you to use these to diagnose your marriage, all right? I want to have given you a grid that goes below the surface of just like, man, you tick me off, to saying, you know, I think this is one of the areas I struggle you may have noticed as I taught one or two of these where you do struggle. The advanced students notice eight where they struggle, all right? Either way, you're normal. You bring that into, the, into a, a, a marriage, and you'll see that the secret of the universe is that the problem with your marriage is not that you have a bad marriage. It's that you're in some pieces. Both of you are, okay? I want you to talk about this. Great topic for date night. I want you to say, hey, you know that attachment thing? That's what you've been trying to tell me. 
or whoa, this can I forgive myself thing? That's why I go off like a maniac whenever you point out my flaws. Okay, this is what you've been trying to tell me. I want this to be something you discuss together, all right? But not as enemies or not as who's the bad guy, but as fellow broken people. I want you to have that orientation in your marriage, okay? Or your dating. Because, one last point. If you've been paying attention, there's one ability that supersedes all the others. It's been in the background of everything I've told you all night long. And it supersedes everything else. Whether we're talking marriage or your faith. It is the opposite of a marriage of condemnation. It is the ability to be humble and repentant. I started with this. It's been in the background of everything I've said. That attitude that says, hey man, I'm broken too. Okay? We're both a mess. Just as this is the beginning point of your faith, this is the beginning point of you having a good marriage. Of you saying, hey, you know what? We got problems and I bet I'm part of it. I know you're part of it too. We're both a part of it. You want to grow? Okay, if you can be that humble, if you can say, yeah, I might be part of the problem. Yeah, I want to grow. I'm not sure exactly what Cox is talking about, but I want to learn. You get that humble, I can take you to school. Okay, you can learn this stuff. If you can't see that, if you need to stay in the position that says, no, I'm the good one and they're the bad one. It's all about her. Then I think what Jesus said about that is then get yourself a big, long, tall glass of iced tea and get in a hammock and recline and just really enjoy it because that's as good as your life's going to get. That's your reward in full. You get to be the good one. All right? Now, for the rest of us, if you're humble, repentant, broken, and screwed up, Jesus is big, and Jesus wants you to grow, and he wants you to heal. And I had a guy in my office this week who said, you know what, I never had any idea that you could really grow. I came to therapy thinking you were going to give me some advice, but you have made me be a different person. I relate in a different way now. I didn't even think that was possible. And I said, God says it's possible all the time. You can grow if you want to come and be humble and say, I want to learn this. You and your spouse can learn this together. So I see singles all the time, and they say, yeah, great, Doc. All these character abilities, how am I ever going to find him? Well, his name is Jesus. But um, (laughs) other than him, find somebody who has one of these abilities, and that is that humble, repentant piece. Some guy who can say, yeah, I don't do that number three very well at all, man. All right, marry him, all right? That's what God says. All you need to do to to marry me is be humble. Be broken and let me change you. All right? That's what marriage looks like. This is the gospel applied to marriage, okay? This plan is good enough for God. It's good enough for your marriage, right? Now, I want to talk briefly just to give you a little grid because we can come back in Q&A and talk about it more. I've alluded a lot to growing. What does that look like? How do we grow? Where does that happen? That's a whole nother conference, but just a little helicopter ride over Manhattan. I believe that this is where the body of Christ comes in. The second family. Remember what I've said over and over and over again is that we get these things in our guts as we experience them in relationships, okay? In other words, we learn intimacy as we are drawn close. We learn identity as we are respected, We learn forgiveness as we are loved, even in our fallenness. We don't learn that from a book. We don't even learn it from a conference. We learn it in a relationship. 
That's how God made us. That's why he gave us parents. That's a developmental relationship. And number two, that's why he gave us each other. The second family. He knows, he's smart, okay? He knows that none of us have completed all of our development and growth in childhood. We're all going to kind of come out of childhood with blind spots and limitations. He knows that. He knows we're going to have character blind spots. And all of those each others in the New Testament are there because the only place we learn now how to be more attached, how to have more of a sense of self, how to be able to feel more forgiven, how to have emotional management is in relationships with other people. That is why fellowship, Presbyterians, is one of the means of grace. Right up there with Bible, sacraments, prayer, worship, fellowship. Now, our cultures turn fellowship into like free time between Sunday school and church. You know, we just have a little time of fellowship and have some coffee. No, fellowship is the most powerful, non-supernatural means of changing your soul, your heart. It's when you and me interact in a relationship in which you're known and safe, and I tell you the truth about me, and you tell me the truth about you. As I said, that's why therapy works. It's just a systematized, strategic form of the body of Christ interacting into your life. All right? So this is my plea to churches. If you want your, your marriage better, then the question to ask is not what's in the latest marriage book. The question is, where can I be getting into relationships in which I can say, hey, guys, I really have trouble saying no. Letting me be me. I'm afraid of my wife. She goes nuts. And I want you guys to help me. And you have people who are safe who are grace-filled, who will tell you the truth, who will not gossip about you, who will keep confidence. We develop a community of people who, who are confidence keepers, who aren't going to Bible verse you, who aren't going to advise you, who are going to tell you the truth in a loving way, who are going to be a fellow struggler next to you. That is what the church needs to look like. And you do that, you're going to put me out of business, and I'd love it. Okay? But that's why there are all those each others in the New Testament. It's not because Paul's just saying, y'all be nice, all right? It's because how we actually treat each other literally will change us for good or for bad. So that's why we've developed small groups. That's why us becoming safe, loving people in the body of Christ is so important. Because what happens is, I go into that group of guys who I've learned to trust. My, 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 my partner, Jim Brown, at my office he and I have been working together for 25 years. We have a relationship like this. It's like, man, can I just tell you the truth and you tell me the truth and let's help each other grow? And we hold each other accountable and we tell each other the truth and I tell him where I'm screwing up and he's like, well, you know, I'll tell him something. He goes, well, how does Norma feel about that? I mean, he's there, but he keeps it in confidence and he pushes me to grow. And then you come out of that with developing better of these abilities. Okay? So, I've wanted to build you a picture of your marriage as this is about the abilities in your character. These are what they are. As you start thinking, wow, how do I grow there? The answer is something we can spend more time developing, and that is relationships. Therapy is one. Mentors are one. Body of Christ is one. Small groups are one. Your pastors are one. In relationships is where we develop these abilities. All right? Now, you grow in that, and you bring that back to your marriage, and it starts to shift that baby mobile. All right?
whether your spouse is growing or not, right? Good. Let's stop there and do some questions or thoughts. I'm open to either. Anyone? Anyone? The gentleman in the plaid shirt? I don't think you're turned on there. There you go. Yeah, can you um, go in or go over again about how being good enough needs to be good enough in ourselves and in others? Yeah. Yeah, can you talk a little bit more about that, being good enough? Yeah, so is your question, um, you want to understand more what that means or how we give that to one another? All right, here's the deal. Um, You and me are both fallen and broken, right? I'm, I'm so far from where Christ would have me, right? And so are you. Now, justice and law and my own judgmentalness or my impatience or my criticism um, is going to fuss at you for having your faults. Maybe you're a guy who's late a lot and we're supposed to meet for lunch and you show up 15 minutes late. And I'm like, dude, you're just late all the time. In other words, I'm going to respond to your fallenness by being a jerk, okay? Now, that's going to make you feel bad, and you're probably going to attack me back. Wow, you're just so uptight, you're never late to anything. You're a blast to be around, Cox, right? And we kind of go back and forth attacking each other. Now, what that's going to teach us is that being bad is dangerous. It alienates. Now, what I think love says is the same thing that the cross says. Love says, you know what? You're not perfect, and you're late sometimes. You're still my friend, and it's kind of a pain in the neck, but you're still my friend. Good enough is good enough. All right? So you're in my small group. We're, let's don't be friends. Let's be small groups. And you say, I don't feel like I'm ever good enough, guys. And uh, I'm going to say, well, tell me a time when you don't feel like you were good enough. <sighs> and you say, well, I don't know. I told you all last week about how I yelled at my wife, and I've kind of been embarrassed ever since. And I don't know. You're like a loser. If I'm in your small group, I'm going to go, <laughs> can I tell you something I did to my wife? Join the party, pal. In other words, the only thing I thought after what you said last week was, man, okay, so I'm not the only guy who's a jerk to his wife. All right. So, and you go, really? And now it's safe to be bad. All right. Now, only when it's safe to be bad do we grow. That's step number one is it's got to be safe. That's why the cross has to happen first. But you say, I'm not good enough. And I'm like, you know, I'm not either. And that's not okay, but it's safe because we can talk about that. Now, what you walk away from is, God, I've never told anybody that I'm a big screw-up. And they go, oh, that makes me closer to you. Usually screw-up means you go further away. And that builds shame. And that makes me hide. And that makes me keep secrets. And that makes me not want to be close to anybody. And guess where I'll never, ever, 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 ever grow if I'm not close to somebody. So first thing that has to go away is shame. And we, so we build a safe relationship. And you tell me the truth. And, and I'm safe back to you. And after we go through that a little bit, I also say, you know, one of the things I noticed, though, is you told me you yelled at your wife, but um, 
I don't know. I never heard you ask her for what you needed. You ever asked her for what you needed? And I start telling you a little truth too. This isn't just a big love fest. I am also start going, I also want to be one of those friends who stabs you in the front. You know, as opposed to stabbing you in the back. I want to go, you kind of lit into her right away. What would it be like to ask her? And you go, I hadn't thought about that. And now you're growing. Now you're learning. Okay. That's all therapy is, is helping people develop these abilities they've not had. Does that make sense to your question? Sir, front row. The board. Um, It looks like impulse control and humility, repentance are larger. Just the words themselves appear larger on the board. Is that for a reason? Yes, because I'm terrible at keynote. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Actually, no. There's a grain of truth to that, though. Um, they're all kind of not the right size. Just because I'm just not good at that. I'm a 20th century guy. I'm used to dry erase boards. But let's play with that. You're right. This is the most important one up there. This is where you bend the knee. This is how many you become a Christian. This is when you say, God, I can't do it. You know what? I can try and 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 I'm still going to fail. This is where you say to your spouse, you're right I really went off on you last night that was really not okay was it do you still love me okay that's humility that's repentance and actually if it if it wasn't bigger than the rest I should have made it bigger than the rest you're right <laughs> so good what were you thinking were you thinking it should be bigger I was thinking in, I mean as the importance I mean yeah yeah important. right yeah it should be bigger yeah. It's going to stay bigger now. Okay. All right. <laughs> Talk about uh, opening up and uh, you know, stupid questions kind of thing. Um, a lot of what you were talking about where you say uh, for you guys that are uh, or people out there that are doormats or people out there, mm-hmm. a lot of it seemed like there was an assumption that we actually already know which we are. <laughs> and so... Uh, That's a great point. Yes. Yeah, um, <laughs> I mean, I, could, I was just sitting there thinking, you know, okay, well, I can see myself in that. But then again, I see myself in that other thing too. Or, or I see her in that, but I also see her in that. So, you know, I can't figure out what, what we are. <laughs> huh. um, is there... A, you know, talk about that somewhere, you know, it's like, well, maybe, maybe that it's not obvious to everybody. You, know, you did mention blind spots, so... Yeah, that's a really good point. Okay, so you're saying um, there's a little bit of an assumption in what I'm saying that as I'm talking, you're going to be able to kind of go, oh, yeah, well, that's me, and what if you're not sure? That's a really good thing. I think I probably need to think about more how to integrate that into this talk. Uh, So let's think. Let's think out loud. Y'all help me, body of Christ. I don't know the answer, so y'all help me. Um. How could you learn which one you were? How could you find out where your blind spots are? Anyone? Ask other people like I'm doing. <laughs> um, that's, like, that's a good one because probably, you know, other people, close friends, your spouse might be able to say, that's a good one. 
Anybody else? I think sometimes they produce fruit. In other words, um, if I'm not able to let you in, people, I'll probably be fine. I'm great with my mountain bike and my ESPN, you know. Um, But people around me probably will tell me that they don't feel like they really know me. Hmm, why not? Maybe I'm not really connecting with them. Um, If I can't keep you in, I will tend to feel insecure in relationships. That's the fruit it will bear. I'll be worried like, uh, like, okay, they, they, they seem to like the first part of the talk, but then we took a break and we came back, and I don't really think they like the rest of it. And I'll feel this insecurity. In other words, I'm not able to keep in love. It'll produce a fruit somewhere. Um, can I be me? Usually produces fruit where you feel like life controls you, you feel anxious, you feel like you don't get to say no, it's not okay to disappoint people. You'll see fruit. Um, let you be you. Usually these people are happy as they can be because they're controlling everything. All right. Usually, usually the I can't let you be you people don't come to therapy. Their loved ones do. All right. <laughs> so that fruit will be they'll finally grow up and start saying no to you. Um, <laughs> um, can I forgive you? This is where, what do we do when the world hurts a lot? Um, God, this is a big one. Let me talk about that for a second. Um, the inability to deal with the pain in the world drives so much pathology. Eating disorders. What's an eating disorder saying? I hate the way I look. It's not good enough. I want to look better. Okay? Um, you see porn addiction come here. The world feels bad. I don't want to face it. I don't um, feel like I'm good enough. Um, so I come up with this kind of imaginary, sexualized kind of wonderland, okay? And that makes me feel better. Um, the inability to, to deal with the pain in life usually drives us to some pathology. Depression. Let me tell you how depression works. Depression works like I face a pain, I face a loss, I face a hurt, I face a part of me I can't stand, and it hurts so bad, or it feels so unfaceable, because I'm by myself, BT-dubs, that I just shut it off, blow the breaker. Now, that's a great plan, because the pain kind of stops. Only problem is that your heart's not like your house, and it doesn't have a whole breaker's panel through lots of switches. Your heart only has one switch. And if you throw the breaker switch to your pain, guess what? You throw the breaker switch to everything, and you shut down. And the resulting feeling of nothingness when you shut your heart down is called depression, all right? Depression is not like being sad. They're almost opposites. If I can be sad, I won't ever get depressed. I get depressed when I shut my sadness off. I get depressed when I shut my pain off. So I'm going to produce a symptom here, and, and you're going to say, hey, doc, I don't know why I'm depressed. And maybe there's an inability to make sense of some pain in your life that you haven't metabolized. In other words, it's another way to do this apart from asking your friends, and I do applaud you for picking that one first. That's good. Y'all are, y'all are good students. That's exactly what you should do is ask other people. Um, the other is that usually it will produce fruit, and we trace the fruit back to the source, and we can find it out. That's a lot of what I do in therapy. I mean, if somebody comes to me and says, hey, doc, I'm depressed, I don't say let's treat your depression. I start learning which one of these they're missing. Because you can get depressed from this one or from that one or from this one. Or, yeah, from that one too. 
Anyway, usually it's a blind spot that's behind it. So track the fruit. One of the nice things about how God made us is that sin and brokenness hurts you before it kills you. So it's kind of like that smell they put in natural gas, you know, so you know there's a leak. You'll start developing bad fruit if you're living in an improper way. And that's what symptoms are. But the Bible tells us that the fruit ain't the problem. The heart is the problem. This is a diagram of how your heart works. All right, we're a little after nine. You are the master to tell us when to stop. I'm glad to go longer. To go longer if people have questions. We did get the Google number up and working too. Yeah. Goggle, Google. Goggle number. They both own all of us. So. See, good enough is good enough. You know what it means, right? That's right. It's yeah. good enough. It's good enough. The number? Uh, seven, six, nine. Two oh eight five six six zero. Cool question. Practical thoughts on the slowdown, shifting from golf, not tennis. Great question. We're going to hit it big in the conflict talk tomorrow, but let me give you a preview of coming attractions. The first step. Whenever things get escalated and you realize you're losing control or you're realizing you just said what you've always wanted to say, you know, or you realize you're escalating, is go to timeout, okay? You put your kids in timeout, put yourself in timeout. We'll talk about this tomorrow. First step is you're, you're reacting with your animal, you know, your reptile brain back here. And that's where it's like what my wife will say to me. Remember I told you I'm the controlly jerk in the family? Um, she'll go, did you mean that to be mean? Because we were just having a discussion, albeit a heated one, but that felt like a jab. Were you wanting to jab me? And I'm like, uh, yeah. And she's like, well, i tell you what, I would really rather not talk if you're in kind of a jabby mood. So let's take a time out, okay? Now, at that point, I'm given an interesting choice. I can continue to jab at which point I hope she will leave go upstairs take a walk around the block but she needs to set a limit on me we set time out on ourselves and we set time out on other people and I will tell her I taught her to do that trick by the way okay now she uses my stun gun on me you know okay in other words I, I want to a repentant person says I lose control I act like a jerk when I do I want you to call me on it like that and that will help me now, if I don't stop, then leave. If you go get in the car and I stand behind the car and won't let you leave, call the cops. I mean, okay, and a good limit is a rule about me. Good limit isn't like, stop yelling at me. All I got to do to win is go yell. I'm going to keep yelling. A good limit is a rule for me. You can yell at me all you want. I'm going to leave if you do. Or as my wife said, I'm not going to keep talking to you if you do. So, as we will say tomorrow in conflict, once you get escalated, you're kind of coming out of your amygdala, and we're, we're smart up here, we're dumb back here, all right? So, you got to stop the madness. Super underused in marriages.
in relationships. People go, oh my gosh, you know, she just stood there and yelled at me for four hours. I'm like, did you not have feet? You know, you, you didn't walk away? I mean, what is your problem? Okay, in other words, we need time out to stop the madness, all right? Only then can you move up to your frontal lobes and actually start solving problems, okay? So, super great question, texter. But you, like, took a lot of my great stuff from tomorrow, so you'll hear some repeats. Say again? What if you have two passive people in a relationship? Two passive-passive? Does anything get done? <laughs> Do y'all have, have six kids in dirty diapers and two rusty Volvos in the driveway? You know, it's like <laughs> the house needs painting. Are you happy? <laughs> um, let me ask this question, if you don't mind saying, um, does that create any bad fruit? Don't think so? Oh, you do? Okay. I would reflect, you're saying, what if you have two passive people? My answer is, whatever fruit it is producing, it will create blah. And I'm not going to ask you to disclose that, but it will create limitations in some way. Right. Now, the question of how to grow as a passive person, what I want to say to my body of Christ people, or my therapist, or my pastor, or my mentors, or whoever I'm going to, the each other's in my life, is I want to say, um, I'm passive, and I don't, want to, I don't want to keep being passive. And they're going to go, well, let's understand your passivity. What, what's going on? What I would ask a passive person is, what do you feel if you, if, you, if you thought about being aggressive? You thought about being initiatory? And I want to learn from them. What they might say is, yeah, I remember every time growing up, whenever I was me, hammer came down. Hammer time. Okay? So I learned, uh-uh, just kind of, kind of float in the background. Or they might say, I'm afraid I'll mess up. I'm afraid I'll do bad. In other words, that passivity is going to have a root somewhere that we want to find. I'm afraid if I am strong like that, I'll be mean like my dad. Um, in other words, passivity is being driven by something. So if I want to grow in my passivity, I'm going to start looking at what is it that's frightening to me? What is it that's vulnerable to me about drawing existing, me being proactive, me standing up for myself, me taking a risk, me being out there? Some people, it's shame. You know, um, the number one phobia in the world, public speaking. You know what number two is? Death. <laughs> I kid you not. Now, why is public speaking the number one fear in the world? Because you can be ashamed up here. You might be stupid. I might say something stupid. You guys all might go to sleep. You might not laugh at my jokes. I'd be humiliated. What we're afraid of, why do I not want to stand up here and say, here's John and here's what I believe? Why do I not want to be passive and just go, and go, I don't know. I don't want to speak because I might be ashamed. Okay, so we look for a reason. And everybody who's passive tends to have a reason. So your, your body of Christ people can help you find that. Is that getting close? All right, good. Let's do Max one more. 
John's getting tired. That reminds me of that Seinfeld, remember? Jimmy likes Ellen. Remember that one? <laughs> Jimmy wants to get Ellen's, Ellen's phone number. Elaine, Elaine, that's her name. J- Jimmy, Jimmy's getting tired up here. <laughs> no more, going once, going twice. Let me see, I'll give phone phone person one more chance. Then we'll stand for the benediction for tonight. All right, that's it. Let's pray, and um, I'll see y'all at 8.30 in the morning. Is that when I start speaking? Yes. <laughs> Boom. All right, so y'all submit to my authority and be here in your seats more or less at 8.30. Let's pray. You are a good God, and we are fearfully and wonderfully made. We're made in your image, and yet... Your image is all cracked up and broken and has missing pieces, and we're a mess. And um, number one, thank you that you make that safe. Um, We make righteousness into some sort of thing about being like a good boy. You say righteousness is where we live accurately, where our characters look like yours, where our blind spots are filled in. Help us learn to hunger and thirst after righteousness, that our hearts would long to be complete and look like yours. We love you. We are so grateful that you have made it safe for us to be broken, safe for us to bring our hearts to the hospital. I pray for these people. I pray for this church. I pray for these people who are here tonight on a Friday night after working all week And they want to learn to be more like you. They want to learn to love their spouse better. I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would move forcefully into their lives. And into this church as a body. To become a body that says it is open to hearing one another's brokenness. And making that safe. And hearing it with grace. And speaking it with truth. And and walking with one another to becoming more like you. And that they would then be able to bring that back to their marriages. And this church would be full of rich marriages where they're able to be close and intimate and trust and know who they are and make room for the other one and forgive each other for the pain and forgive themselves for their failure and to manage how out of control our emotions can be and stay grounded and connected. I ask Holy Spirit for that on this group. I pray that you would be with us again in the morning. Thank you for this evening, for uh, the time that you've given us here, the, the richness I've felt with these folks. We pray all this in the name of Christ. Amen.